everybody and welcome back to Something Dark. I'm in a slightly different location than I'm normally recording in so I hope everything sounds good for you guys. So we're already on our seventh episode which is crazy. Today I'm actually going to do a case that was requested on my Instagram. Um, I'll leave my Instagram in the show notes but if you ever have a case you want me to cover let me know. So bringing us to tonight's case. This case was heavily publicized in the media in the early 2000s and if you've you've seen the movie Gone Girl, um, the character that Ben Affleck plays or the storyline that he follows is kind of like loosely influenced by this case I believe. There's a lot of similarities, especially his character and his behaviour. So that brings us to tonight's case. Tonight we're going to be discussing the case of Scott Peterson who is a convicted murderer who's currently incarcerated in San Quentin State Prison. And in 2004, he was convicted of the first-degree murder of his pregnant wife, Lacey Peterson, and the second-degree murder of their unborn son, Connor, in Modesto, California. So to get some more information about the case, we're going to go back in time and give some background on Lacey and how her and Scott met. And that will bring us to her disappearance on Christmas Eve 2002. Lacey was born on May 4th, 1975, to her parents Sharon and Dennis, who had met in high school, and owned a dairy farm in West Escalon, California. Sharon named Lacey after a pretty girl she met in high school. Lacey's older brother, Brent Rocha, was born in 1971. Lacey worked on the farm at a young age and also enjoyed gardening with her mother, an activity which she developed an appreciation for plant life that influenced her later in her life. Sharon and Dennis divorced when Lacey and her brother were young. Sharon and the kids moved to Modesto, though the children visited the dairy farm on weekends. Sharon eventually married Ron Grzynski, who helps raise Lacey and Brent from the time Lacey was two years old. Lacey was a cheerleader in high school and junior high, and after graduating from the Thomas Downey High School, she attended California Polytech State University, where she majored in ornamental horticulture. While at California Polytech, Lacey would sometimes visit a friend who worked at a restaurant in Morrow Bay called the Pacific Cafe. There she met her friend's co-worker, Scott Peterson, in mid-1994. Lacey made the first move, sending Scott her phone number, and immediately after meeting him, she began to tell her mother that she had met the man that she would marry. Scott later called Lacey and they began dating, their first date being a deep-sea fishing trip on which Lacey got seasick. As Lacey's relationship with Scott grew more serious, he put aside his dreams of professional golf in order to focus on a business path. The couple dated for two years and eventually moved in together. While Scott finished his senior year, Lacey took a job in nearby Prunedale. Prosecutors have stated that around this time, Scott engaged in the first of at least two extramarital affairs, though they have not revealed a name or details of each relationship. After Lacey's graduation, the couple married on August 9th in 1997. Scott graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Agricultural Business in June 1998. After their graduations, they opened a sports bar in San Luis Obispo called The Shack. Business was initially slow, but eventually improved, especially on the weekends. They sold The Shack in 2000, 
when they moved back to Lacey's hometown of Modesto to start a family. In October 2000, they purchased a three-bedroom, two-bath bungalow in an upscale neighborhood near La Loma Park. Lacey soon took a part-time job as a substitute teacher, and Scott got a job with Trade Corp USA, a newly founded subsidiary of a European fertilizer company, in which Scott earned a salary of $5,000 a month. Lacey's family, including her mother and younger sister, said that she worked enthusiastically at being the perfect housewife. She enjoyed cooking and entertaining, and that she and her family welcomed the news in 2002 that she was pregnant. Lacey's due date was February 16, 2003, and the couple had planned to name their son Connor. In November 2002, when Lacey was seven months pregnant, Scott was introduced by a friend to a Fresno massage therapist named Amber Fry. In later public statements, Fry said Scott told her he was single, and the two began a romantic relationship. On December 23, 2002, at 5.45pm, Lacey and Scott went to Amy, Lacey's sister's workplace, where Amy cut Scott's hair as she did each month. As they spoke, Amy said Scott offered to pick up a fruit basket that she had ordered for her grandfather as a Christmas present the next day because he would be playing golf at a course nearby. Prosecutors say Scott also told other people he would play golf on the day of Christmas Eve. Lacey's mom, Sharon, spoke with Lacey on the phone at around 8.30 that evening. On Christmas Eve 2002, Scott and Lacey woke together in their home in Modesto. After eating breakfast and watching some TV, Scott left to go fishing while Lacey was watching a cooking television show, preparing to mop the floor, bake cookies, and then walk the family dog to a nearby park. Scott Peterson told police he first drove to his nearby warehouse to send emails and retrieve his boat, which he brought to Berkeley Marina. Time-stamped emails and a receipt from the marina back him up. After about 90 minutes of fishing, Scott said he returned his boat to the warehouse and went home to an empty house and showered. Scott told investigators that he assumed Lacey had gone to her mother's house. He called his mother-in-law looking for his wife and half an hour later, Lacey's stepfather called 911 to report that she was missing. Earlier that morning, Karen Service, a neighbour of the Petersons, stated that at around 10.30am she found the Petersons' dog, a golden retriever named Mackenzie, alone outside the home and returned her to the Petersons' backyard, and didn't observe anything out of place. According to ABC News, Scott reported Lacey missing from their Modesto home, However, the New York Post reported that when Lacey still had not returned home by 5.15pm, Scott called his mother-in-law, and then half an hour later, Lacey's stepfather, Ron Grzynski, called the police. The Modesto Bee also attributes the first call to police to Grzynski. After police arrived at the Peterson home, Lacey's keys, wallet, and sunglasses were found in her purse in a closet. The dining room table was meticulously set for a family dinner the following night. One detective found a phone book on a kitchen counter, open to a full-page ad for a defence lawyer. Scott was reported to be completely calm, and Modesto police detective John Bueller and Alan Burcini, the lead investigators on the case, questioned Scott Peterson that evening. Scott stated that he went fishing about 90 miles from the couple's Modesto home. Detectives immediately launched a search, 
but were surprised by Scott Peterson's behavior. Beeler told ABC News in 2017, I suspected Scott when I first met him. Didn't mean he did it, but I was a little thrown off by his calm, cool demeanor and his lack of questioning. He wasn't, will you call me back? Can I have one of your cards? What are you guys doing now? Scott Peterson first met Modesto police on the day Lazy went missing at a nearby park, where she was known to walk their dog. Police suggested going back to the couple's house, the first of many tests placed on Scott to gauge his reactions. As Lacey's husband, Scott was immediately on police's radar as a suspect, given the fact that most acts of violence are committed by people known to the victim. Police gave Scott multiple opportunities to be forthcoming with information and, it was implied, demonstrate his innocence. But he failed most of these tests. For example, when interviewed by police on the first night Lacey went missing, he declined to take a polygraph test and would continue to refuse polygraph tests going forward. In the following days, police said Scott did not ask them any questions and seemed unconcerned about the police's investigation. The complete opposite of how you think a husband would act. Police also noted Scott's strange behaviour, such as how he couldn't remember the kind of bait he'd used when he'd supposedly gone fishing that morning, or what he prioritised during the investigation. His major concerns were not lacy, one detective told People magazine in 2005. His major concerns were his car door hitting his other car door in the driveway, or me taking a picture of his boat in the shop, or getting a receipt for the pink slippers and sunglasses the tracking dog used for Lacey's scent. Detectives also gave Scott Peterson another test on the day after Christmas, when they executed a search warrant at his home. Once again, Scott was hesitant to cooperate with the police in ways that might prove his innocence, like taking a polygraph test but he seemed more concerned with protecting himself. It was more strange behaviour from a man who supposedly had nothing to hide. A missing pregnant woman is newsworthy enough, but it was the police search on the Peterson home after Christmas that tipped off the media of the seriousness of the investigation into Scott, and all of a sudden, the handsome, charming husband was a viable suspect. The search for Lacey came to include helicopters equipped with searchlights, police mounted on horsebacks and bicycles, canine units, and water rescue units on rafts. A total of 30 officers were involved in the search, as well as Lacey's loved ones and volunteers. At a press conference, Detective Albertini said that police did not believe that Lacey decided to leave without contacting her family, commenting that this is completely out of her character. The initial search and later vigil were organised by the immediate family and friends, In the first two days, up to 900 people were involved in looking for Lacey. Eventually, the story attracted nationwide media interest. Posters, blue and yellow ribbons, and flyers were circulated, and a website was set up for Lacey. Friends, family, and volunteers set up a command centre at a nearby Red Line hotel to record developments and circulate information. Over 1,500 volunteers signed up to distribute information and to help search for her. As police continued to search for Lacey, and clues that might explain her disappearance, Scott sold Lacey's car, leading to suspicions that he might be trying to get rid of evidence. National news networks immediately began to camp out on the street, 
lunging at Scott any time he entered or exited his home, and exasperating his neighbours with their noisy trucks and lights. Police, and eventually lawyers for both sides, began to use the media to leak information, in order to sway public opinion. They leaked both rumours and facts. Rumours like Lazy had been murdered by a satanic cult, and facts like how Scott was hiding a mistress. Lacey's disappearance was a bonanza for the burgeoning 24-7 news cycle. Of course local news and Modesto covered the story of her disappearance, and the volunteers had mobilised to help find her. But bigger fish, like Nancy Grace, then a former prosecutor making a name for herself as a legal analyst on cable news, capitalised on Lacey's disappearance as well. From the moment of her disappearance, the Rocha family, Lacey's mother, stepfather and brother, repeatedly spoke to the media in the teary-eyed manner viewers have come to expect from loved ones in crisis. The family publicly supported her husband and defended his innocence. However, the public's view of Scott was an entirely different story. On December 31st, 2002, the town of Modesto held a public vigil for Lacey and Connor. Scott declined to speak at the vigil, but he was in attendance. And so were photographers, who captured him in two damning photographs that haunted him throughout his eventual trial. In one picture, Scott bends down beside his knees to set down a candle, a big smile across his face. In a second picture, he is standing with a group of people and laughing. By any measure, this behaviour at a vigil for his missing wife and unborn child looked bad. Some explain Scott's demeanour as simple aloofness. There is, after all, no guidebook on how to behave after your wife goes missing. Quickly, though, media scrutiny, particularly Nancy Grace, who had a bullseye on Scott from the beginning, led the public to turn on Scott. He wasn't solemn enough. He wasn't panicked enough. He was good-looking, charming, and, it turns out, lying. Scott did something else during Lacey and Connor's vigil as well. He called a secret girlfriend. We've spoken earlier on about Amber Fry, but I'm just going to go back into their relationship just so we have a little refresher. Amber Fry, a massage therapist and single mom, was introduced to Scott by a friend in November 2002, and they began a romantic relationship. In early December, around the same time they were photographed at a holiday party together looking cozy, Scott told Amber his, then very much still alive, wife had died and this would be his first Christmas season without her. Police later wondered if Scott's admission to Amber about his dead wife was tantamount to confessing to a premeditated murder. On December 30th, 2002, after seeing a newspaper article about Lacey's disappearance, Amber called a tip line and immediately began working with the police to pull whatever useful information she could out of her boyfriend and secretly record it. In all, she recorded over 29 hours of phone calls with Scott the next day, Scott told Amber he was ringing in the new year in Paris with friends when he was actually at Lacey's vigil. Neither Scott, the Petersons, nor the Roaches knew the police were aware of Scott's affair or that Amber Fry was recording their calls. Then, in mid-January 2003, police learned that the National Enquirer had in its possession a photograph of Amber and Scott and intended to publish it. On January 24th, Amber, shaking like a leaf, revealed herself at a press conference and confessed that Scott had told her he was single. From that moment forward, the Rocha family turned on their son-in-law. So did too the small army of volunteers who had been looking for Lacey. 
In late January 2003, Scott's Good Morning America interview with Diane Sawyer went so disastrously that it calcified the public hatred against him. For one thing, he lied to Diane when he said that he had told police about his affair the day that Lacey went missing, when in fact he had told police that their marriage was fine. He also told Diane that Lacey knew about his affair with Amber and was okay with it, a statement which just about threw Nancy Grace into a fit. Most damningly, Scott referred to his missing wife in the past tense, saying Lacey was amazing. On January 5th, 2002, divers using sonar equipment searched the Berkeley Marina where Scott had gone fishing, the place where police suspected he had dumped Lacey's body. Nothing was discovered. later on April 13, 2003, a couple walking their dog found a decomposing but well-preserved body of a late-term male fetus in a marshy area of the San Francisco Bay shore. One day later, a passerby found the body of a recently pregnant woman wearing beige pants and a maternity bra, washed up on the eastern rocky shoreline of the bay, just one mile away from where the baby's body was found. The corpse was decomposed to the point of being almost unrecognizable as a human body. The woman had been decapitated, and her limbs were missing, including most of her legs. Within days on April 18, 2003, DNA tests confirmed the bodies belonged to Lacey and her unborn son, Connor. The autopsies on both bodies were performed by a forensic pathologist, and according to the autopsy, Connor's skin was not decomposed at all. Although the right side of his body was mutilated, and the placenta and umbilical cord were not found with the body. The exact date and cause of Lacey's death were never determined. She had suffered two cracked ribs, though the autopsy could not determine if this occurred before or after her death. Lacey's upper torso had been emptied of internal organs, except for the uterus, which protected the fetus, explaining the lower level of decomposition it experienced. The pathologist determined that the fetus had been expelled from Lacey's decaying body, though he testified that he could not determine whether the fetus had been born alive or dead. There was no food in his stomach which would have indicated a live birth had it been present. The Associated Press observed that the doctor's testimony appeared contradictory at times. Though he stated that no cause of death could be determined for Lacey or Connor, he also said it was her death that caused Connor's death while he was still in utero. Within a week of this discovery, Scott was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, with a special circumstance of double homicide, which opened the door for prosecutors to seek the death penalty. Scott had mostly been staying in San Diego with his family, allegedly to avoid media attention. It was there that police arrested Scott at a golf course on April 18th. He was carrying over $10,000 in cash, camping gear, his brother's ID, and four cell phones. Critics were quick to point out that San Diego is near the Mexican border, and Scott had dyed his hair blonde and grown a full beard, further suggesting that he may have been planning to run. Scott was arraigned on April 21, 2003, and charged with two counts of murder. Connor was included as a murder victim under California's fetal homicide law that protects any fetus over eight weeks old.
Before his arraignment, Scott had been represented by Kirk McAllister, a veteran criminal defence attorney from Modesto. Chief Deputy Public Defender Kent Faulkner was also assigned to the case. Peterson later indicated that he could afford a private attorney, namely Mark Garagos, who had done other high-profile criminal defence work. On January 20, 2004, a judge changed the venue of the trial from Modesto to Redwood City because Scott was the victim of increasing hostility in the Modesto area. Scott's trial began on June 1st, 2004 and was followed closely by the news media. In opening statements, Gregarious claimed Scott was a cad for cheating on Lacey, but he was not a murderer. Prosecution witness Amber Fry hired her own attorney, Gloria Allred, to represent her. Allred was not bound by the gag order imposed on those involved in the trial. Although she maintained that her client had no opinion about whether Scott was guilty, Allred was openly sympathetic to the prosecution. She appeared frequently on television news programs during the trial. Prosecutors claimed Scott made cement anchors to weigh his wife's body down in San Francisco Bay. However, none were found when the bay was searched, even though the sonar could have picked up these small objects on the seafloor. The defense questioned whether the investigation was thorough, since Modesto police detective Mike Hermos admitted he did not check the alibi of a prostitute who was accused of stealing checks from Peterson's mailbox. But Hermos did not indicate that the woman was ever a suspect, and the prosecutor Dave Harris noted that the checks were stolen after Lacey vanished, precluding the woman from involvement in her disappearance. A police community service officer testified that an interview with Scott had no sound due to no batteries being put in the tape recorder. Other detectives were called to testify about the extensive search for evidence. Scott's defense lawyer based their case on the lack of direct evidence and played down the significance of circumstantial evidence. They suggested the fetal remains were that of a full-term infant and theorized that someone kidnapped Lacey and held her until she gave birth and then dumped both of the bodies in the bay. The prosecution's medical experts contended that the baby was not full-term and died at the same time as his mother. Juror Francis Gorman was removed and replaced early in the trial due to misconduct. Jury foreman and attorney, Gregory Jackson, later requested his own removal during jury deliberations, most likely because his fellow jurors wanted to replace him as foreman. Gregaris told reporters that Jackson had mentioned threats he received when he requested to be removed from the jury. Jackson was replaced by an alternate. A single hair was the only piece of forensic evidence that was identified. It was matched through DNA comparison to a hair from Lacey's hairbrush and was found stuck to pliers found on Scott's boat. Presented as prosecution evidence during the trial was the fact that Scott changed his appearance and purchased a vehicle using his mother's name in order to avoid recognition by the press. He added two pornographic television channels to his cable service only days after his wife's disappearance. The prosecution stated that this meant he knew that she would not be returning home. Scott expressed interest in selling the house he had shared with Lacey and traded in her car for a Dodge pickup truck. Rick Chang, a hydrologist with the United States Geological Survey and an expert witness on tides of the San Francisco Bay, testified as a witness for the prosecution. During cross-examination, Chang admitted that his findings were probable, not precise. Tidal systems are sufficiently chaotic, and he was unable to develop an exact model of the body's disposal and travel. As the trial progressed, the prosecution opened discussion of Peterson's affair with Fry 
and the contents of their secret recorded telephone calls. Charles March, a fertility specialist, was expected to be a crucial witness for the defence, one who, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, could single-handedly exonerate Peterson by showing that Lacey's fetus died a week after prosecutors claimed. Under cross-examination, March admitted basing his findings on an anecdote from one of Lacey's friends that she had taken a home pregnancy test on June 9, 2002. When prosecutors pointed out that no medical records relied on the June 9 date, March became flustered and confused on the stand and asked a prosecutor to cut him some slack, which further undermined his credibility. Summing up this key defence witness, Stan Goldman, a criminal law professor in LA, said there were moments of today that reminded me of Chernobyl. According to one newspaper account about March's testimony, by the end of his testimony Thursday, legal analysts and jurors closed their notebooks, rolled their eyes and snickered when they thought no one was looking. The prosecution presented Scott's affair with Amber, financial problems and impending fatherhood as motives for the murder, surmising that he killed Lacey due to increasing debt and a desire to be single again. On November 12, 2004, the jury convicted Scott of two counts of murder, first-degree murder with special circumstances for killing Lacey, and second-degree murder for killing the fetus she carried. The penalty phase of the trial began on November 30th and concluded December 13th, when the jury rendered a sentence of death. On March 16th, Judge Alfred A. DeLucci followed the jury verdict, sentencing Scott to death by lethal injection and ordering him to pay $10,000 towards the cost of Lacey's funeral, calling the murder of Lacey cruel and caring, heartless and callous. In later press appearances, members of the jury stated that they believe Scott's demeanour, specifically his lack of emotion, and the phone calls to Amber in the days following Lacey's disappearance, indicated his guilt. Juror number one and two other jurors said they based their verdict on hundreds of small puzzle pieces of circumstantial evidence that came out during the trial. From the location of Lacey Peterson's body to the myriad of lies her husband told after her disappearance. Scott arrived at San Quentin State Prison in the early morning hours of Wednesday, March 17, 2005. He was reported not to have slept the night before, being too jazzed to sleep. He joined more than 700 inmates in California's sole death row facility, where his case was on automatic appeal to the Supreme Court of California. On July 6, 2012, Scott's attorney, Cliff Gardner, filed a 423-page appeal of Scott's sentence, which stated the publicity surrounding the trial, incorrect evidentiary rulings, and other mistakes deprived Scott of a fair trial. The State Attorney General's Office filed their response brief on January 26, 2015. The defence filed a response to the state's brief later in July 2015, claiming that the dog that detected Lacey's scent at Berkeley Marina had failed two-thirds of a test with similar conditions. In November 2015, the defence filed a habeas corpus petition, claiming that a juror lied in her jury application and that there was evidence that neighbours saw Lacey alive after Scott left home. On August 10, 2017, the State Attorney General responded to the appeal by filing a 150-page document contesting the notion disputing the claims put forward in the appeal. 
stating that the appeal ignored overwhelming evidence that Scott murdered Lacey. Supervising Deputy Attorney General stated that the timeline of the crime was established by a neighbour who found the Peterson's golden retriever, Mackenzie, wandering the street with its leash still attached before the sightings of Lacey and her dog. The Deputy Attorney General also indicated purported sightings of Lacey were legion, noting 74 reported sightings in 26 states and overseas, most of which she stated were neither viable nor corroborated. In August 2018, the defence filed a reply which included claims of deficient performance by trial attorney Mark Gregoros, such as failing to call in experts in fetal growth, dog scent, how bodies move in water, stating that he would call witnesses but failing to, and failing to properly address burglary evidence. On June 2, 2020, the California Supreme Court heard argument on Scott Peterson's appeal. The defence argued that prospective jurors were improperly excused, that the trial judge improperly allowed two jurors onto Scott's boat, that the judge urged in insisting the prosecution be present during the defence testing of the boat, and that the motion to move the trial to another county should have been granted due to juror questionnaire results, showing almost half of all the prospective jurors had already concluded Peterson was guilty prior to the trial. The prosecution countered that the California Supreme Court should only overturn the verdict if it were to find that a prospective juror was improperly dismissed and that there was no credible claim that any of the 12 jurors who decided Peterson's fate were unfair or partial. On August 24, 2020, in a 7-0 decision, the Supreme Court of California upheld Scott's conviction, but overturned his death sentence, because Scott's trial judge, Alfred DeLucci, who had died on February 26, 2008, had dismissed jurors who opposed capital punishment without asking them whether they could put their views aside. Justice Leandra Kruger, explained that per Supreme Court ruling since 1968, jurors may not be excused merely for opposition to the death penalty, but only for the views rendering them unable to fairly consider imposing that penalty in accordance with their oath. This is the meaning of the guarantee of an impartial jury. So, although Scott's death sentence was overturned, his conviction was upheld. The death of Lacey and Connor led to the passage of the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which is also known as Lacey and Connor's Law. On April 1st, 2004, Lacey's mom and stepfather were in attendance at the White House when President George W. Bush signed the bill into law. The act provides that under federal law, any person who causes death or injury to an unborn child while in the commission of a crime upon a pregnant woman will be charged with a separate offence. On October 21, 2005, a Supreme Court judge in California ruled that Scott was not entitled to collect on Lacey's $255,000 life insurance policy, having been convicted of her murder. California law states criminals may not profit from insurance policies, and on December 19, 2005, the money was given to Lacey's family as the executor of her estate. In 2006, Lacey's mom, Sharon, wrote for Lacey, A Mother's Story of Love, Loss and Justice, a biography and memoir about Lacey's life and death. All proceeds are used to fund the Lacey and Connor Search and Rescue Fund, which she had founded. On January 29, 2006, it was listed at number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. Lacey's stepfather, Ron, died in his sleep at his Modesto home on April 8, 2018, at age 71, after a lengthy period of failing health. 
He was buried next to Lacey and Connor. And that brings us to the end of tonight's case. So I believe a lot of people have heard about this case already and it's quite an interesting one seen as it's kind of still going on. Um, there was a lot of different articles and stuff in the news about his different appeals and being taken off um, his like death sentence and stuff being taken off the table. But I think he's going to be staying in prison for the rest of his life. I think it's pretty clear that he killed her. I think the the best evidence against him is the calls with Amber Fry, the one saying that he recently lost his wife and this would be his first Christmas without her while Lacey was like still alive and pregnant. And then while at her vigil, he was on the phone to her saying he's celebrating Paris, he's celebrating New Year's in Paris. Like what the fuck? Um, if you've seen Gone Girl you have to agree that Ben Affleck's like <laughs> character with the affair and all that stuff is really similar. And if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend um, watching it as well. If you're kind of on the fence about Scott or you're like, mm, I don't know like if he actually did that or whatever, go and look at his interview tape with Nancy Grace and Diane Sawyer. They're all um, online. He is like, he's so awkward. Not even awkward. <laughs> If you remember Chris Watts with the the case with Shanann and the two daughters um, that he killed them, kind of like laughing and stuff during the interview, which you wouldn't really be doing. It was just really, really strange. And it's kind of obvious that he, he had killed her, especially talking about her in the past tense and stuff. Mm, don't trust him. Anyways... So as I said in the beginning of the episode, this was a request that I got on Instagram. So you can find me at something.dark.podcast on Instagram. My DMs are always open if you want to send a request. I have a couple more to work through. Um, a lot of people liked the last week's episode on missing flight MH370. And I'll probably do more unsolved cases. Uh, personally, they sometimes annoy me <laughs> because I want to know what happens. But there's a there's a like a good few more different ones so there's also the ones about like the 411 like missing people in national state parts and stuff so i'll have a think about next week's episode but if you have any requests let me know thank you for listening if you're on spotify please follow me um if you're listening on apple podcasts please leave a five star review if you like the podcast it helps a lot and it helps my podcast get recognized. So that brings us to the end of the episode. I want to say another thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next week.